Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayler and this is the Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host for the next hour. And uh, this is the space where we explore the human body, where we explore what, how to keep it in optimal shape, how to uh, understand the diseases that can affect us, how to counteract them if possible. And sometimes, you know, what happens genetically, sometimes something is not a disease, it is a Actually, I can't even think of the word, but um, we're going to be talking today about hemophilia. Now, I, I remember the first time I ever heard about hemophilia was when I was learning about the uh, the Russian Revolution. And, uh, I mean, that was basically, it became the downfall of the house, didn't it? Because uh, the Tsar, um, Tsar, I think it was Tsar Nicholas, mm. he had... Uh, he had a son who was hemophiliac and they brought in this this mystical man by the name of Rasputin and Rasputin used to terrify this child but somehow it got him to stop bleeding and he got into the royal family like that I mean it was already quite corrupt um, but that became part of the downfall of the Tsar and uh, you know then you've got the Russian Revolution very, very interesting condition, hemophilia. But that was, as I say, the first time that I had heard about it. And I suppose that unless your life is directly affected by it, it's something that you don't really think about. But boy, oh boy, when you know somebody who, whose life is being affected by it and you do research on it, you realize how completely and utterly devastating it is. So uh, I've invited into studio Professor Johnny McLangu. He's a professor of hematology, the Faculty of Health Science at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. He's the head of the School of Pathology, the Faculty of Sciences, University of the Witwatersrand, and the National Health Laboratory Services. He's the head of the Clinical Hematology Ward and Service, Charlotte Matseke, Johannesburg Academic Hospital, the list goes on and on and on. I think we can establish that you are actually qualified to talk on this, <laughs> Professor. Thank you very, very much for coming into HIFM today to discuss hemophilia. Um, we're also joined in studio by Lynn Glover, and we're going to be getting her personal story. Her grandson was diagnosed with hemophilia, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. I'd like to welcome you both, and uh, thank you very, very much. Professor what is hemophilia? Thank you, Lynn. Um, Kathy. And thank you, Kathy, <laughs> for inviting me to uh, raise awareness uh, around uh, hemophilia. Um, hemophilia is actually a, a genetic condition in which the individuals are born with, um, without a particular protein responsible for stopping the bleeding called the clotting factor. Um, so deficiency of a clotting factor is what defines hemophilia. Uh, we differentiate it between the different types of hemophilia based on what the missing clotting factor is. Uh -huh. um, if it is a factor 8, it's called hemophilia A. If it is a factor 9, it's called hemophilia B. What are the differences between the two factors? 
the difference between the two factors is it's purely their role in hemo in hemostasis. Um, you know, factor eight it plays a particular role, uh, and in fact is not an enzyme. It is actually a core factor, uh, whereas factor nine is actually an enzyme. And oh. and in fact, what often happens when you bleed um, automatically, you've got a cascade of events leading to stopping the bleeding. And in that cascade of events, you've got a protein-protein interaction, and some of those protein-protein interactions involve clotting factors. And that is basically what uh, is missing in hemophilia. Uh, it is inherited um, in an excellent fashion uh, in uh, in that sense, uh, males are the people who are affected by hemophilia because males have got only one X chromosome, uh, whereas females are obligate carriers because they have two X chromosomes. The other chromosome tend to protect the females uh, so that they don't become sufferers of hemophilia. So it is a genetic condition uh, that is uh, X-linked. It, it's inherited in an X-linked fashion. Having said that, and in fact you'll hear later from Lean, um, about a third, about 30% of the people with hemophilia that we look after do not have a family history of hemophilia, the so-called spontaneous mutations. Okay. Perhaps the best way to understand what hemophilia is is to understand what it isn't. What does clotting factor 8 do in a, in a normal healthy body? What is, the, what is the function of it? So clotting factor 8 or factor 9 or any of the clotting factors for that uh, matter, they are responsible for playing a role in what we call secondary hemostasis. Okay. So So... And again, technical terms, but, but it's worthwhile perhaps explaining what, uh, what do you mean by hemostasis. Hemostasis is a process leading to clot formation upon injury. So if you do cut yourself, whatever reason, um, the body will then initiate a process leading to clot formation. Uh, in that process, the primary role players are platelets. And once the platelets are in place, the secondary role players are clotting factors. So the role of factor 8 and factor 9 is to participate in that clot formation in a process that we've often described in the past as coagulation cascade, uh, the protein-protein interaction. So that's the role of the clotting factors. So in and a if you're missing one of those, you are unable to successfully form a clot and therefore instead of forming a clot, you will bleed. So in a normal healthy body, just to make sure that I'm understanding, if I cut myself, right, it will bleed. And then as I apply pressure, it will, the bleeding will stop, it will reduce. And that's when the clotting factor is actually working in my body and it's forming like this mesh. That's correct. Right, with the platelets. That that's correct. It's kind of already starting to build this emergency wall. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's uh, and, and, and in the absence of one or more of those clotting factors, even if you apply the pressure, you are unable to form that match. And consequently, if you remove the pressure, the bleeding will continue. What happens if it's not an external injury? The same process follows. Right. Uh, if it is an internal Like a bleed, bruise, right? A bruise... That's correct, yeah. You have a bad bump. So, so a bruise would be an injury under the skin, and the, pro the same process will actually be followed. Um, you will not stop the bleeding. In fact, typically, 
patients with hemophilia tend to have particular sites of bleeding and they bleed predominantly into joints as opposed to bleeding elsewhere. They can obviously bleed uh, elsewhere, but they predominantly bleed into joint, the so-called hemarthrosis. Uh, so that is an internal bleeding uh, and that recurs throughout their lives. From anything? Well, they don't have to actually have an injury. They can have bleeding as a result of injury, but most of them will bleed spontaneously without any injury. And the reason for that is because uh, there are varying degrees of the reduction in the clotting factor. If the level is less than 1%, in other words, you've nothing, you don't produce the factor at all, you'll tend to bleed spontaneously. If the level is above 1%, say between 1% and 2%, you will then bleed upon hemostatic challenge and only bleed when you go and have a dental extraction or some other major uh, or minor procedures. And of course, if the bleeding is above 5%, um, you probably tend to bleed, but actually you have the ability to stop bleeding even without the replacement of the missing clotting factor. So we, we differentiate between three types of severity, mild, moderate, and severe, depending on the level of the clotting factor that you have. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Um, what percentage of lack of clotting factor would you need to have to be classified as a hemophiliac? Ideally, you should have normal levels, and normal levels are between uh, 50 and 150%. Um, so if you've got less than 50 you are actually likely to bleed and the severity of the bleeding will depend on the severity of the decrease in clotting factor level. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is the Diskem Medical Monday. I'm speaking to Professor Johnny Mahlangu. He is a, he's a professor of hematology, an absolutely brilliant man. You can hear, you know, and media is his, is his thing. He knows what he's talking about. Everybody wants to talk to him. Uh, if you've got questions about hemophilia, that's what we're talking about today, then uh, this is how you get in touch. You can send an SMS on 34519. You can also send a WhatsApp or Telegram on 0618951019. We're talking about hemophilia. A little bit later, going to be joined by Lynn Glober. Uh, going to get her personal story. Her grandson was recently diagnosed with hemophilia. So uh, if you've got any comments, any questions, then you're welcome to send them through. Um, Professor Matlango, how, how common is hemophilia? It is uh, fairly uncommon. Um, in the case of hemophilia A, we're talking about one in 5,000 live births of boys who are born with hemophilia. Uh, in hemophilia B, we're talking about one in 25,000. So relatively speaking, it's less common than other bleeding diathesis, such as, for example, there is a condition called Van Willebrand's disease, uh, which has a much higher frequency. One in a hundred individuals uh, will have Van Willebrand's disease, but it's obviously a totally different protein that is involved. Uh, so hemophilia uh, around the world currently we have in the region of about 450,000 individuals that have been identified uh, with hemophilia. In South Africa, that figure is in the region of about 2,300 individuals. So diagnosed. It's, it's not common. Yeah. yeah. Diagnosed, that's right. Being managed and diagnosed. Yeah. I mean, that, it does become a risk when one considers, you know, our rural areas 
where perhaps somebody may have died without knowing that uh, that it was uh, hemophilia. Um, Lynn, I want to bring you in now. I want to talk about uh, your beautiful grandson, firstly Mazel Tov. Thank you. Um, secondly, how I mean, how was the birth? How did tell us take us through the story of how he was diagnosed as hemophilia? Okay, thanks, Kathy. Um, so my daughter's pregnancy was absolutely a textbook pregnancy. Couldn't have been better. Um, she went into labour, and four hours later, this beautiful boy was born. <laughs> the easiest birth. I mean, I walked in there ten minutes after he was born, and I said, "Have you just been for coffee?" Okay, <laughs> that is how she was amazing. Everything was perfect. Um, Gadi was born. His feet were his feet and hands were a bit blue. So he actually spent the first night in the NICU. They were just a little bit worried about his circulation. And um, I don't think it's anything too uncommon. It's, and it wasn't anything to be terribly concerned about. Um, he came home from hospital two days later and everything was perfect. There was no indication or no signs that anything was amiss. Um, on day eight, uh, he had his bris, which was also, I mean, he was brisked cried like any other baby would and that was his bris was at four half past four and Kelly and Dean took him home and they called the Mohel because he wasn't there was blood in the nappy. Okay. Okay, I just want to translate for anybody okay. who doesn't know what a bris is. A okay. bris is a circumcision. Um it is a ritual circumcision. As Jews we are obligated to do it on the eighth day. Um what happens in the body is that on the eighth day I think that is when the babies have the highest vitamin what is it? Vitamin K, right. Um, and that's just, that's just a natural thing that happens. And the Mohel is the person trained to do the circumcision. Okay, continue. Okay. Then. Um, they went home, so the, there was blood in the nappy. They called the Mohel, as he said, you know, if there's any problems, please call me. And they tried to stop the bleeding. And eventually, my daughter said, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm taking Gadi to the hospital. Bleeding wasn't stopping. Mom's no, huh? Yeah, mom's no. Um, they got to the hospital, and they didn't really know what the problem was. So How much was he bleeding? Well, he eventually bled out. A baby has about 250 mils of blood. Am I correct, Prof? Yeah. Okay. And he had lost 250 mils of blood. That is a cup. Oh, okay. my gosh. Um, and... Eventually they stopped the bleeding. They put on, and you'll be able to help me more here, it's a dressing that obviously has a clotting factor. Am I correct, Professor, in it? Um, they put that onto his penis and stopped the bleeding because they didn't know. Obviously, I mean, when I say obviously, even in a hospital, how often do they see a hemophiliac baby? Which is why they were, the doctors were a little bit stumped as to what was going on. Um, and he... Little guy, he had the first of three blood transfusions. Um, the next day, he was so ill that they actually, and you can explain this if you want me to, in the Jewish religion, if somebody is very, very ill, what they do is they either change a name or they add a name to the person's name to try and change the, the energy. The, the energy. Okay. So Gadi Doron had an extra name put onto his name, Gadi Doron Chaim. That is how sick he was. That is how, well. Like a last-ditch attempt. Exactly. Um, that was his bris was on the Wednesday. This was on the Thursday. On the Thursday night, they decided to move him from the um, Cape Medi Clinic 
to the Vincent Pilati Hospital where they felt that they had better, the NICU was far better prepared to look after a baby. They had now diagnosed him as a hemophiliac. So before they moved him, just let me transgress a little bit. They, on testing, they found that he was missing three factors. Okay. Factor eight, factor ten, and factor five. Okay. After giving him the factor eight, the factor ten, and giving him cryo as well, which Professor can explain, it almost like reset. So he was no longer missing factor ten or factor five. It was just factor eight that was missing. That's incredible. It was unbelievable. But I'll let Prof explain that later right. so or if you want me to let, carry on. Yeah, okay. So I think carry on and then I'm going okay. to ask you about cryo. Okay. Um, they moved him to the Vincent Pilati Hospital, which in itself was inexplicable. It took them an hour to move him from the one incubator to the other. They don't just pick up a baby and kind of say, okay, well, you're in this incubator. Now you're going into the incubator to go into the ambulance. It is a real process. This is a very, very fragile little boy. Um, they got there, and just to tell you, when we got to Vincent Pilati, um, there were women already saying to him, to Hilema's arms, yeah. yeah. Um, as we got there, they admitted him. Um, that was the Thursday night, and he was kind of he held on, and there, you know, he had better hours and worse minutes. And but on the Sunday, in fact, on the Saturday night, he was he 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 wasn't great, but the pediatrician came to talk to us and said, "Look, he's he's stable." Okay, I think she was being a little bit. Um, kind of here's a family and they just need a little bit of kind of positivity yeah. and encouragement. On the Sunday, we were called by the neonatologist um, and she told us that the chances are that Gadi was going to die. He was in kidney failure um, and this little boy wasn't going to make it. And if he did make it, he would be a vegetable and... Okay, okay so this was... Thursday was his breast. Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. Thursday... Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five yeah. days later. Five days later. Okay. Um, she said, look, you need to think about taking him off life support. He, w- he had been intubated before they moved him from um, the Gardens Medi Clinic, from the Cape Medi Clinic. She said, you need to think about, you know, taking him off life support. And thank God for halakha. Halakha, Kathy, do you want to? Halakha is Jewish law. Okay. Thank God for that because you cannot take anybody off life support without two rabbis, two doctors, sorry, um, having examined the patient and deeming that there is absolutely no chance that there's going to be any chance. Okay. All I can say a million times over is thank God for that. Because being a Sunday, we were going to wait for the Monday until the doctors came. and yeah, There's no rush. There's, there's no, no rush. rush to take anybody off Exactly. But in actual fact, the neonatologist did not think that he would make Sunday night. We went to say goodbye to him, and, well, I, I don't even have to go into explaining what it is like to say goodbye to a absolutely perfect infant, to your baby, to your son, to your grandson, to your nephew. It's it's inexplicable. You're taking us on this it's, journey, on this very traumatic journey yeah. with you, Lynn. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking you on because I think it is vitally important for everybody to realize that it can happen to anybody. This is the kind of thing that you always hear that happens to other people. But you know what? We are the other people. And we are no different from you or from you or from anybody. We are the other people. So, Gadi Doron Chaim, 
made made it through the Sunday night. He obviously. made it through the Sunday night. So despite all the odds. Despite all the odds. Okay, he made it through Sunday night. Um. From there on, I cannot say it was plain sailing, but something, something, he, he, Gadi was not ready to go. He was, this was his journey in life. Okay. If you, um, okay, not if you, Gad is one of the 12 tribes. Okay. Yeah. Gad is a warrior and Gad is a fighter. And this is exactly his name was meant to be. Okay. Gadi, that is exactly who he is. He was not giving up. I would like to add in, though, that at this point we had Tehillim groups, which are prayer groups, rolling Tehillim groups going on worldwide. Okay. I have never known anything like this to have brought people together. I mean, it was just hours on a lot of the groups, and I'm just watching this going on and on and on. It and was who's doing what Tehillim? And, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um was it that? Was it Gadi? I think it was a combination of both. But this little boy was here, and he's here to stay. How old is he now? He's four and a half months. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> it was, I can't say that it was plain sailing from them, because it wasn't, and it's still not now. He spent six weeks in the NICU. Um, he suffered a brain bleed from the blood loss, and um, he obviously was intubated, and he couldn't suck. They then took him, I mean, it was a, it was a mad journey because from intubation to CPAP to BPAP, which Prof can explain in better detail, to breathing on his, on his own was like, it was astounding. And every time the doctors kind of said they're not sure if that's all that Gadi had to hear because he said, wait, I'm going to show you. Okay. I am going to show you. Tell me that I can't do this. And the next day he did it. It was. Ridiculous. And in fact, it still is. Whatever you tell him, he will, that you don't think, it happens. The it's next incredible. day, it happens. Um, after six weeks, Kelly was there, could, my daughter and her husband could bring him home. And he, I mean, the, the challenges that we face now is first of all, because he didn't suck for six weeks, um, he lost the sucking reflex. So they had to, which another hugely traumatic thing, before they could bring him home, they had to insert what is called a mickey or a peg, which is a feeding tube directly into the stomach. It's not just as easy as that. In a hemophiliac, they have to have factors before the operation and factors after the operation, and they have to stay in hospital. Okay. Every time, and I don't want to, I'll, obviously Prof will expand on this, every time you give a baby factors, there's a, they... There's a chance of them developing inhibitors. Inhibitors are a huge problem for any hemophiliac because they, like, if you take antibiotics, you eventually become resistant to antibiotics. That is the problem. So you need more and more and more antibiotics. Well, if you develop inhibitors, you need more and more and more blood. And this is the issue with having an operation. So all of that, it's not just so simple, okay, let's insert the peg and off he goes. But they did it and Thank God he was fine. Um, he still has the Mickey in place, which is how we have to feed him now through the feeding tube. It is, it's, it's hugely traumatic. There is nothing that's really within the realms of normal because people don't feed babies like that. Um, you either breastfeed or you bottle feed. And there's also, there's a tremendous bonding process that goes when the mommy's feeding the baby. Of course. Of course. Whether it's from a bottle for a breast. Of course. 
of yeah. course. So, look, you still, I mean, you're still holding him. And so if you were bottle feeding, it's, it's the same kind of process. But you, you literally are opening this little valve, attaching a tube in it, and the, the milk is going straight into his tummy. But in as far as still holding him and loving him and that, you know. No is, question. There's no question. You know, that is still being done. Yeah. Um, so that 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 in a in a nutshell was the process from day eight to where we are now, four and a half months down the line. All right, I'm going to ne- direct. Thank you, Lynn. I'm going to direct my next question to you, Professor Matlangu. And uh, by the way, if you've got any questions, any uh, any comments for my guests, you're welcome to send them through on three four five one nine. That's the SMS line, or you can WhatsApp or Telegram on zero six one. Eight nine five one zero one nine. My guest, Professor Johnny Matlangu, he's a professor of hematology um, at the Faculty of Health Sciences, University of the Witwatersrand, and also Lynn Glaber. Um, she is you just heard her personal story. Just the the trauma hearing about this. But Lynn mentioned some treatments and some processes that I just wanted to get clarification on from you, uh, Professor. What is cryo? Uh, um, Kathy, um, cryo is a product of um, a blood and um, it is rich in the missing clotting factor, particularly clotting factor 8. It is uh, used to replace the missing clotting factor 8. Um, it, it is usually given in a setting where we are not sure exactly which clotting factor is missing. Um, in, in, in this day and age now, we do have very specific clotting factors that we normally replace. But, but cryo is still being used and it's still very useful in that setting because not all hospitals, for example, will have clotting factor uh, replacement uh, immediately available, whereas most hospitals will have cryo available that can be used for that purpose. Hmm. Is it unusual for, I mean, you heard Lynn saying that her, her grandson, they tested and they found that he was lacking three clotting factors. Um, once he was given the clotting factor eight, mm. was it was it eight? Was yeah. It, um, well, yeah. All eight. of a sudden, <coughs> his body reset and he had clotting mm. factor ten and five, which were the other two that were missing. Is that unusual? Uh, it, it is unusual. Um, uh, perhaps I could just explain the possibilities. Um, sure. No. The, the fact that they picked up more than one clotting factor, often the interpretation is usually the issue. Um, babies' hemostasis is fairly immature at day seven or day eight, and, and, and often one does not have the same levels of factor as in adults. So that is one explanation for it. Um, you know, it's that the, the interpretation might have just been that they are picking up a lot of clotting factor deficiencies, but actually uh, the baby was still going to mature and have the normal levels uh, in their body. Um, we do have instances where you've got more than one clotting factor that is missing, um, but that becomes lifelong and it's genetically determined. And, 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 and thanks goodness uh, with Gadi, uh, that is not the case. Uh, my, my personal interpretation here is that probably they must have sampled the blood at a time when the clotting factor levels were not at the level at which they were able to interpret them as normal or abnormal. I mean, just to give you an indication, we do have what we call normal values. And what I indicated to you earlier on, 50 to 150 
is normal values in adults. Uh, it is possible that, in fact, the normal values in kids are different. We still don't know much, I mean, for obvious reasons, that these are often very precious babies. We can't just sample blood and establish normal values uh, out of them. Sure. Yeah, but my impression is that it, it might have been just an interpretation issue rather than uh, anything else that one could attach to. So uh, with, with Lynn's grandson, I mean, he was diagnosed, you know, on the eighth day, right, because of his circumcision. How do most people if there is a most people, mm -hmm. um, with hemophilia, how did they get diagnosed? At what age and how? What are the circumstances? I mean, are there symptoms beforehand? That's a good question, Cathy. Um, it is variable. It, it often depends on the level of the clotting factor. As I indicated earlier on, we've got mild, moderate, and severe. Sure. Most severe people will be diagnosed uh, at birth or immediately after birth. And it's usually in the context of bleeding in the umbilical cord that is unusual. Um, and that's where, in fact, most of the diagnosis happen. Uh, having said that, um, the diagnosis can actually be any time. Um, in fact, in, in our clinic, we're diagnosing people who are 50 years old for the first time. But, I mean, that's what you alluded earlier on, too, yeah. that some of it is just awareness that is not uh, come through the communities and sure. people have not had exposure to expertise, the hematologists, etc. But the, the, the earliest presenting feature is usually umbilical cord bleeding and, and sometimes you can have bruising that is unexplained. Um, this is now bruising, for example, into the little feet um, and, 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 and as they as they progress with life, uh, often you don't pick up much until they start walking and they start exploring and suddenly uh, wherever they sit down, their bum uh, is, is full of bruises. Wherever you pick them up, in fact, your fingers suddenly hurt them uh, and, and they have bruises. Uh, and, and the commonest site of bleeding in someone with an established hemophilia, it's usually into joints. So the, suddenly they've got... Uh, joints that swell out of nowhere without any injury um, but they can bleed anyway they can bleed into the skin they can bleed into the mucous membrane they can bleed into uh, and and very rarely in fact they can also bleed into the brain right just like uh, just, just like, like your grandson. Yeah, yeah yeah done yeah yeah um <coughs> lynn also mentioned inhibitors yeah it sounds quite ominous what are inhibitors, how do they affect the body, and how does it specifically affect a hemophiliac? So, so I think one of the, the critical learnings from Lean's story is that hemophilia is manageable. We can treat it. We can actually do a lot uh, to make sure that the patients either stop bleeding or the bleeding is prevented. And, and the way we do it is you replace the missing factor. Once you've replaced the missing factor, um, you, you can actually prevent bleeds or stop the bleed that has already started. And that's what is called on-demand treatment or prophylactic treatment. Uh, and we do that with... Um, factor that is from outside the body. In other words, exogenous factor. And there are two sources of such exogenous factor. We can either get that from a blood product, 
In other words, the donors will donate blood and we separate the various components, the cellular component in the plasma, and the plasma will then be fractionated into a factor concentrate that is derived from the blood. Or we can actually manufacture the missing protein in the lab with no connection at all to human blood. That's incredible. Um, and that's called recombinant technology. So the disadvantage of replacement therapy, either using plasma-derived or recombinant product, is that the body actually had not seen that protein before. And there is a danger that the body might react to that protein by producing antibodies against that protein. And those antibodies are then called inhibitors. Uh, inhibitors basically render the protein that you are replacing with uh, completely useless. Um, in blocks fact, you out. Blocks you out completely. Yeah. Um, and that is actually one of the most frustrating complications of replacement therapy, is that there is a... Uh, a 30% chance that you may develop inhibitors. And thanks goodness, uh, in the case of Gadi, no, has not yet developed that. Uh, we've got a number of risk factors that we have identified that will predispose individuals, for example, uh, to inhibitor development. Um, the, the type of hemophilia that we're dealing with, for example, the, the severity is, is a contributing factor. Um, at the time of replacing the therapy, it might be that, in fact, there is another surgical procedure being done that also increases the risk of inhibitor development. Um, we do have the genetics that are associated with inhibitor development. For example, we know that if your hemophilia is a res as a result of large deletion in your factor VIII gene, um, the risk of inhibitor development is much greater compared to someone who has other mutations, such as a missense mutation, for example. So so there's a whole host of risk factors that we have identified that may well contribute to inhibitor development. But it is, it is a, a frustrating um, complication of replacement therapy. And, 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 and of course, we are working on alternative to replacement therapy, which perhaps if you get a chance later, we can talk about, because I think it's important that one uh, recognize that um, although hemophilia is manageable, the current approach has even greater complications and worries. Well, let's talk about that now. Yeah. Let's talk about that now. So, so, so the approaches up to now has been to replace the missing factor. That's standard. We are moving now to the so-called non-replacement therapies. And, and there's a whole host of things we are doing. Instead of identifying a factor 8 or a factor 9 and replacing that, we are manipulating hemostasis so that you get clot formation downstream. You are able to form the clot even in the absence of the clotting factor. That's called non-replacement therapy. Gosh, We're working it sounds on completely about, counterintuitive, doesn't it? It, it sounds counterintuitive, but yeah. in the context of hemophilia, in fact, we already have um, uh, about five or six products that are already uh, underway, and one of them, in fact, has just been registered in South Africa two weeks ago. It's called Hemlibra. Uh, what Hemlibra does, it, it just takes the place of factor eight, and it does exactly what factor eight does. Uh, so that's the non-replacement therapy. The next level we are working on, which is an exciting um, sort of field at the moment, is gene therapy. Uh, gene therapy essentially would be able to um, allow individuals to get a single injection 
and be able to start producing the missing protein uh, without continuously replacing the missing protein. I mean, Lean uh, alluded to the fact that, you know, you're dealing with a small baby. At some stage, you you actually battle to get veins um, uh, to do the replacement therapy or to treat the treat, uh, the bleed. So, so, so those are some of the approaches that we are currently working on, uh, replacement therapy, non-replacement therapy, as well as gene therapy, um, which is currently uh, evolving very rapidly. A message from one of our listeners, and you can also send through your message. I'm sure that you've got uh, lots of questions, and you do that on 34519. That's a text line. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send through a telegram or WhatsApp on 061-895-1019. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is, I'm speaking to Professor Johnny Mutlangu, who is a professor of hematology at the fa- Faculty of Health Sciences at WITS, and uh, yeah, his CV is as long as my arm, so <laughs> we're not going to go through, but he, he's, uh, he's the guy to go to. Um, also joining us in studio is Lynn Glober, and uh, her grandson was diagnosed at the time of his circumcision, at the time of his bris, as a hemophiliac. Um, Karen wants to know, I think it's Karen or Karen, um, do female hemophiliacs menstruate? That's a great question. I wouldn't have ever thought of that. It is a great question. Perhaps to clarify, to take a step backward yes. and say, um, we, we don't expect females to be hemophiliacs because of the two X chromosomes and right. the one X producing a normal factor, uh, mitigating the effects of the other X, which may not be producing the factor. So having said that, in, in other words, females should not be hemophiliacs. They should just be obligate carriers. So hemophilia is a condition that is carried by females affecting only males. Um, we do have rare scenarios where hemophilia carriers become symptomatic. But that's a totally different genetic pathway. Um, and in fact, in those instances, they have the normal hormonal response. Uh, so they do menstruate, they do undergo the normal uh, development processes that are associated with the various female hormones. So, so certainly they do, and uh, one would expect that uh, unless there's some other genetic abnormality, uh, they should not be uh, confused with uh, males with hemophilia. Okay. So I hope that that answered the question for you, Karen. Yep. Lynn, you want Professor, to say something? Professor, I'd just like to, ask, to talk about two things. One is when you were saying about gene therapy, they've been doing a lot of experimentation in Israel. Um, can you tell us a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, actually going to talk about that yeah. with the, yeah. with the yeah. Sheba Hospital. Yeah. Because you're working quite closely yeah. and you've got colleagues. Yes, in fact, I, I just came back from Israel um, to meet my colleagues, uh, Ginny Kenneth and, and, and others, uh, Hadassah, and, and, and visited quite a few centers there. Um, we are in the process of actually um, a, a very, very nice evolving field of gene therapy. Uh, and, and the one approach that we are currently using is uh, packaging um, the gene that is responsible for producing factor eight into um, a harmless virus called AAV. And, and then that then gets injected and it sits in the liver. The liver is actually the factory where all proteins are produced. And then it starts producing your factor. Uh, unbelievable, fact, center, an unbelievable concept. Absolutely. Um, to use a virus yep. to carry whatever's missing, the yes. gene, yeah. 
into your body. That's correct, yeah. So our center and, 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 and the center in, in Sheba, I mean, Chile Kenneth Center and others around the world are currently very excited. In fact, we are Gosh, I'm excited. in the, pros- <laughs> in so the process of um, uh, enrolling our patients into various programs. There are close, or close to 10 programs that are currently uh, no developing that. So do uh, South Africans have access to that? I, I mean, do. In, in our center, in fact, we're doing it at the moment. Oh, that's um, amazing. Uh, in fact, um, four of my patients uh, have gone to London and they, they actually uh, don't have replacement therapy currently because they are producing the factor intrinsically. So, so it is an exciting uh, era and, and, and gene therapy uh, will obviously not be for everyone. Uh, because it's got its limitations. Um, but having said that, it holds the potential to be able to relieve patients with hemophilia, at least of the burden of having to, to live with hemophilia for all of their lives. At least, um, you know, if, if they are eligible to be able to receive gene therapy, they would at least get one injection, mm-hmm. and that injection would allow them to, to live a relatively normal life thereafter. So that yeah. was the thing. Could it take somebody from a serious hemophiliac to moderate or from moderate to mild? I mean, would it change the degree with gene therapy? Fantastic question. In fact, our approach in the past, and this is now with the replacement therapy, was to convert someone who is severe to either a mild or moderate. But they'll still have to live with the condition. They still have to be ultra careful about injuries, etc., Gene therapy has got that potential, and in fact, in the studies that have been done and uh, published to date, uh, the success rate is fairly variable. Uh, we're talking about factor levels that are produced by individuals ranging from about 10%, which is very protective, to over 150%, which is super protective. Mm. So, so, so there's that range. And, and, and one of, obviously, the challenges we are facing is to understand why some people uh, do have lowish level and others who have higher level. But the bottom line is gene therapy in general will take individuals who are severe or mild and make them moderate or normal. And that is, and that is the aim of gene therapy, to, um, uh, at least today. Can hemophiliacs lead normal lives, as you and I know normal lives to be? I would like to believe, in fact, um, yes, they should be able to, uh, with or without gene therapy, by the way. And, 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 and one of the approaches that now is globally accepted is what we call prophylaxis. Prophylaxis is you give on a regular basis replacement therapy so that the individual actually is prevented from bleeding. I mean, if you, if you take someone who, uh, for example, bleeds frequently into a knee, um, and you only wait until they bleed before you treat them. If they are a scholar, that means they will miss school days. They'll have to be in hospital for those days, and it will take time for the resolution of the bleed. Uh, Whereas if you are proactive about it and say three times a week, you will need to take the injection whether you bleed or not. Uh, In fact, you might catch the bleed before it happens. And the consequence of that is that they are able to live relatively normal lives. Obviously, we don't encourage people with hemophilia, and it doesn't matter what the level is, uh, to go and do bungee jumping, to go and play rugby, which are... Clearly, you know, sports that are likely to result yeah, in sports. Um, that's yeah. right, yeah. But um, we, we, we hope that we do allow individuals to live a, 
a, a relatively normal life. Amazing. So what treatment is, is, is Gadi receiving, Lynn? So currently twice a week he goes to get his factors, um, which is the level of trauma is huge. They have to find a vein, and if you can imagine, in a teeny baby, the veins are... Minuscule. Like a hair. Am I right, Prof? Yep. Okay. Um, they've first got to find the vein, and then, so as I say, in Gadi's case, sometimes three, four, five times they've got to prick him until the vein is actually able to carry the factor into his blood. What happens, they put in the... Um, they don't, the um, it's not a needle. It's a butterfly. The bu- yeah. They actually don't use a butterfly on him. They're using mm. a purple mm-hmm. gel. Gel coat. Gel yeah. coat. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it'll go in, and be- he's got veins that kink. So it'll go in, and they can't follow up the vein. So which is why he gets, you know, so many times he they have to try and battle to get the vein. So currently it's twice a week that he has to have the replacement. But the the poor child, the trauma that he goes through. And it's not only the being pricked, it's being held down. And then you can imagine when they take blood for, from you or you get an infusion, they usually, to pop out your veins, they will put a cuff around your arm. Which they Obviously, can't with they him can't. because his hemophilia can That's cause a bleed. Correct. But even so, it's, it's much too big. So what they do is that they hold, they've got to hold him down and try and push and get a vein to pop up. So that in itself is very traumatic for a baby. Um, then they start pricking and hopefully, you know, they will or they won't get a vein. Um, the process is extremely traumatic. It can take anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half. Um, he comes out of there with looks like a little pincushion with three, four, five plasters on him. Um, it's extremely traumatic, but thank God we can control it. Um, <laughs> it is the only treatment available to us now, but as Prof said, a new um, drug has just been approved which could be life-changing because it's not an infusion sorry once they get into the vein it's then an infusion which takes about seven minutes they, they have to put it in slowly but to be able to do a subcutaneous injection would be life-changing it means you don't have to find a vein you can inject anywhere in the body and the needle i have no doubt is as thin as anything it's in and out finished um, so parents can do it at home. Parents do do infusions at home, but obviously not on a baby that's so teeny. Um, as their children grow up, they will do it. But the trauma involved in it is huge. And I'm sure for no less for mom and for and for granny or yeah. boba. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, as you were explaining, Professor, about what's happening in the body with hemophilia, I wondered what is the immune system of a hemophiliac like? You know, are they immune compromised because of the hemophilia and not having this clotting factor? Okay, that's a very, very important question. Um, It's a question that some of us are beginning to to, to ask more frequently because, um, you know, in, in, in many instances, if you're still giving replacement therapy, uh, one would expect that that challenges the immune system and, and to some extent it may well dampen the immune system uh, and they may well be prone to infections, for example. And we've seen that in, 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 in a few studies. But, I mean, that, that is one example of 
possibly the replacement therapy changing the immune system. As I said, the, the, the biggest challenge is when the immune system actually starts rejecting the replacement protein that you're giving away, you start forming antibodies uh, against that the, 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 the inhibitor. Just to go back to what Lean alluded to, um, the, the, the replacement is now... Uh, obviously been uh, through just the venous access. You you have to inject or infuse into a vein. And we've been working on mechanisms of alternative routes of administration. Uh, and, and in fact, some of us are very pleased that um, subcutaneous route is becoming a reality. Um, you know, being able to just uh, inject you know, lift, anywhere in the body, lift your skin and inject and yeah. let the child be the child is actually a huge advance. It reduces the treatment burden, the trauma that is associated Can with finding imagine? a vein. Wow. Um, and, and one hopes that, in fact, it's, that's going to change the way hemophilia patients grow with the disease in the future. Kathy, two things I'd like to, and I'll ask Professor to expand on this. First of all, what I would like to say is that. As I said just now, everybody thinks this will never happen to me. There is, so if there's a history of hemophilia, Professor was explaining to me just now, there is a test that can be done whilst you're still pregnant. There is a, and am I correct in saying it's a pinprick test once the baby is born? They don't do it generally or routinely in South Africa. But if you have a history, then you, you should insist that your child has it. But the thing is, it's not if you have a history. If you have a history, you're actually better off because you are prepared for it. Yeah. So your child can still be circumcised. They can still have their breasts, but they will have to have the factors before. before. The problem comes when there's no history of it. So, so do you not have any history in your family? Nothing. Kathy, I've got two sons besides my daughter. I've breasts them both. I have a brother. Um, I have a sister who's got a son. We've... We've all there's got, no history anyway. There's no history. Now, it would come down from my mother. So, in fact, we've got, I've got an older sister as well who's got two sons. So, in the family, there are five boys just from m me and my siblings. There's no history. So, the, the problem is not if there is a history because you, you will be prepared. It's if there's no history, which is exactly what happened in Gadi's situation. So, I think that I don't know how we could get that test to be done routinely. I mean, they do tests on babies as they're born anyway. So it's a simple test because here there was no umbilical bleeding. And in fact, Gadi had had his tongue tie. So he had a tongue tie, which just means that your tongue, the little piece of skin that's attached from the bottom of your mouth to your tongue was a little bit big. So they just snip it. And he actually had it snipped at seven days the day before his breast. And there was no issue. The doctor turned around to Kelly and Dean and said, his breast will be fine. There was no bleeding. On day seven, there was no bleeding. And the, okay. body, and the body has this amazing boost of vitamin K, and the next thing he bleeds. Okay. And he bled so, out. Exactly. So we, there were no, n not only is there no history, but there was no umbilical bleeding. It was a suction-assisted birth. There was no bruising. There was, there was nothing to indicate that this was going to be an issue. So the first thing that, that to be able to do that test... And the second thing that I'd like to speak about, because I can see that we're almost at time, is yeah. the importance of blood donations. Okay. Khalil Gibran said, you give of yourself when you, you, you truly give when you give of yourself. It's very easy to raise money, and yes, it will go to hemophilia research, but the cornerstone of any treatment 
at the moment is blood donations. And I never, I kind of was always, oh, let somebody else do it. Okay, or you know, it'll be fine and stupid. They were actually co- quite unlike you. It's completely, it's completely unlike me. You're not okay. a, you've never been a never. let somebody else take care exactly. of it kind of person. Exactly, but you kind of always think, oh, they were stupid. They were in a car accident, so they need blood. You, that's kind of you. You know, it was careless people that need blood, but blood is a lifeline. Okay, it is, and not only can you give blood, but you can also give platelets. Um, which is a very and involved. The plasma and they and separate. The and that's and right. It, it's a much longer process. I think it takes an hour and 40 minutes. It can be a bit of a painful process and can make you feel a bit ill. But it is a lifeline for so many people. And we are um, working with the South African National Blood Services, and we would like to organize a blood drive in June. Um, I would like to obviously use this platform to with pleasure to advertise it, and it will be Gadi's gift. This is this whole thing is in Gadi's honour because this little warrior boy has brought people together. He is he is going to create awareness that nobody's created before because it is vital. It can happen to you. Absolutely incredible. What support system do you have? Are there support groups? So, Kelly and Dean live in Cape Town um, at the moment, but because of the whole trauma and because of it's not just a matter that they found that he was a hemophiliac, there's everything else that has gone with it. Um, They haven't really explored the support groups at the moment. Okay. So, so just, uh, Kathy, to, to perhaps uh, come in there, we, we do have support groups nationally. We've got the South African Hemophilia Foundation, um, that, uh, clearly has, uh, is a patient organization that, uh, looks after the interest uh, in collaboration with the, the experts. And we've got the World Federation of Hemophilia. So the South African Hemophilia Foundation is actually a member of the uh, 140 plus member, uh, World uh, Hemophilia Foundation. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, Professor Johnny Mashlangu, I actually need to just read your entire CV because it is so very impressive. So <laughs> as we do that, I just want you to know who my guests have been. Lynn Glober, we've been hearing her personal story and really we just wish you and uh, and your grandson well. Thank well, you. your whole family. Thank you. And uh, may everybody just be well and may this be, may good come from this, Lynn, in that more people get tested, more people get diagnosed, that there is this advocacy for a cure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, this is really I just quickly want to say something. When we were, when, um, we were at the hospital and they changed, they added Chaim onto Gadi's name. I stood outside the NICU and I said, Gadi, you will get better because you have to thank all of these people now that are saying to him, that are standing here at the shul. We organized a mincha in like half an hour. Okay. There were, I don't know how many people. Um, Mincha being the afternoon prayers, yeah. He had to come home, and I kept on telling him that because you have a bigger thing in life. You have to thank these people, and this is going to turn into something. This is your journey. So powerful. So powerful. Yeah, Professor Johnny Mashlangu, uh, he is a professor of hematology at the Faculty of Health Sciences, University of the Witwatersrand. Just listen to this list, okay? He's the head of School of Pathology Faculty of Health Sciences, University of the Witwatersrand, and the National Health Laboratory Services, Head of Clinical Hematology Ward and Service at Charlotte Mateke Johannesburg Academic Hospital, Head of Main Hematology Diagnostic Section, Department of Molecular Medicine and Hematology, 
National Health Laboratory Service Hematology Laboratory in Johannesburg and Director of World Federation of Hemophilia International Training Center in Johannesburg. It has been an absolute privilege to, uh, to have you both here. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for sharing your knowledge, your expertise. And uh, I'm sure that we will get you back sometime soon. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you very, yeah. very much. And to you, I wish you a wonderful week, a good week. Stay healthy, stay safe, God bless, and I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.